<laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Better than Shakespeare. <laughs> Less dick jokes, though. It's yeah. true. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Amazing Maurice, or The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents, or as I like to call it, Ignorance is Bliss. And our guest is screenwriter and cat lover, Michelle Law. Welcome, Michelle. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. One of the benefits of, of having to go to recording over the internet is we can now talk to people who aren't even in the same city as us, which is very nice. Yeah. Yay, technology. Is this mm. your first Terry Pratchett book? It is. I feel very intimidated because I am talking to two Pratchett experts. Uh, I remember reading some of the Discworld series in early high school because um, I did a lot of drama and I remember there was a monologue maybe from death that I had to learn for a drama at Stedford, but it was all out of context. So I was like, this is a really interesting character, but I have no idea what it means. You, your Stedfords were way cooler than mine. <laughs> yeah. I never got to do anything like death's monologue. That's cool. I think it was the teacher they brought in externally and she was a big Pratchett fan. So that was sort of my first exposure. Um, but yeah, up until this point, when this book was recommended to me, I was like, this sounds like something that I would absolutely be very into. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it because I feel like I will definitely be reading more Pratchett in the future. Because yeah, this one's quite a good re- introduction, I think, because it like eases you into some of the stuff, but you don't have to know all of the background to understand this book. Mm. So it is like a gentle introduction, I thought. I think so as well knowing a little bit about the character of death was helpful and he pops up at some point. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, it stands alone. And so none of it was really that confusing to me. It all sort of made sense and the characters made sense. And yeah, it was a nice way to dip my toe in. Yeah. And get a look at Uberwald. Uberwald. (laughs) I like that they had the the section where they teach you how to pronounce things like they did in Harry Potter where they like in the fourth book they teach you how to say Hermione oh I know for for um up until that point I used to call her Hermione I heard I called her Hermione (laughs) look I knew how to pronounce it and I'm gonna be honest with you I don't know why like it is a name like she didn't make that name up but I don't Mm. know why I knew how to say it shall we get into it like it's such I don't want to like I feel like we're on a real good run with books here, Liz, like this is one of my new favorites, I think. But uh, it's so fun and so dark, and but also still really funny. Like there's yeah. some real good funny stuff in it. But I think we should let's get into it. So let's start as we traditionally do with a reading of the blurb. It's a ratted rat world. Every town on Discworld knows the stories about rats and pipers, and Maurice, a streetwise tomcat, 
leads a band of educated ratty friends and a stupid kid on a nice little earner. Piper plus rats equals lots and lots of money. Until they run across someone playing a different tune. Now he and his rats must learn a new concept. Evil. Ooh, so <laughs> creepy. And this is a, a later edition. Um, and we, we did show, as we always do on the social media, the copy of one of the books that we're reading. And I, I've got the sort of, not the most recent edition. The most recent edition's got a more cartoony cover, but this one's, this one's great. It's got a little picture of huh. the Piper. Um, Michelle, oh, you've got that one with a sort of close up of Maurice. Is it, would you say Maurice or Morris? Cause there's like, there's been some discussion about this in our Discord chat rooms. Which I, do you think it is? I don't know if this is correct. I don't know if there's a right answer, but I say Maurice. Mm, yeah. Crazy old Maurice. Crazy old Maurice. <laughs> what? There's a reference I don't know. That's a crossover Simpsons podcast. And oh, Beauty okay. and the Beast as well. Oh, sorry. No, it is Beauty and the Beast. I don't... Miss Scusi, that is a terrible failure of my Disney obsession. No, look, if it's not, not also The Simpsons, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> like, yeah, it's I've, the sort of thing they would have. Yeah, I've always said Maurice when I've seen it spelt this way, and certainly the very rare occasions I've encountered someone with this name, that's how they've pronounced it. But oh, See, I, I've been saying Morris because I did know one person who had their name spelled like this, and it was Morris. Oh. And it was strange because they'd introduced themselves as Morris, and I was like, okay, M-O-R-R-I-S. And then I got a letter from them, and it said Maurice. And I was like, what is going on? My world is broken. So, yeah, I've been saying <laughs> Morris this whole time. Well, it's probably but- Morris. It probably is Morris. I mean, it's the English way to take a good French name and just ruin the pronunciation of it. <laughs> yes, but the British have Morris dancers, and that's spelled M-O-R-R-I-S. And I know that we can't be like, oh, well, the English spell it one way, so that's the only way they say it in any form. But, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's and then there's why, something in that. Then why have the name Morris M-O-R-R-I-S, like Morris Gleitzman? Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess that's where my thought process came from. So, anyway, I'm probably going to say Maurice during this episode if you think it's morris and that annoys you i'll do an alternate edit of the podcast no i'm not going to do that that would be that would be ridiculous you just send us a stern letter and we will not respond but the setup is just like immediately i was just so on board for this because i i have a weird love for the story of the pied piper of hamlin well there's a netflix show at the moment that is basically the pied piper story i forgot what it's called because there was two that came out that were called something like the order and one is about a magical order and the other one is the pied piper one where all the kids get sent out of town and they come back to the real town but it's yeah it's a but no one's there and it's just but they're existing in parallel it's a whole thing and i was like oh this is the pied piper thing i'm so smart i'm gonna be the first person who noticed it and i went on the internet and like you type in the title of the show and the, the autocorrect is like pied piper i'm like oh <laughs> oh no <laughs> i'm just like okay fine everyone is the same and no one has ever had a unique thought ever so yeah oh well never mind anyway but the story is is great and i'm sure like a lot of people these days i'm most familiar with the pied piper of hamlin story through the poem version by robert browning which is quoted in the first lines of the start of the book rats they chase the dogs and bit the cats that's what that's from it's from about the i think the second verse or third verse of the poem so yeah i was all i was all about this i like that it just gets straight into we just know what the scam is like from the start you don't have to learn it but we're not starting with them on a scam we're starting on their way to their next scam like any good heist film (laughs) i guess 
and we meet all the main characters. Well, we meet some of the main characters. We don't meet all the main characters immediately, but we do meet the kid who doesn't start off with a name. I like <laughs> that. Stupid looking kid. I like that he's mm. given a name maybe a third into the book and it's like, oh. And even Maurice slash Morris is like, you have a name? Yeah. <laughs> Are you like, how long have you been doing this? So you <laughs> yeah. never asked this kid's name? Yeah, they've amassed a lot of shiny coins. So it's certainly not just like this week. No, they've been doing it for some time. I don't think they, I don't think they say how long they've been doing it, but they've been doing it for a while. Hmm. But how long do rats live for, even if they are changed? So, like, it can't be oh, that long. I think long. it's um, it's not that long. I remembered because in the book, when they're talking about dangerous beans and him having, you know, had a good life and things, because he was already three years old. Oh no, sorry, it was ham and pork. Yeah, and he's he yeah. remembers the old times. Yeah, so. he remembers the old times, and I know this because my friend uh used to have pet rats, and mm. she said they were great companions because she lived in a rental and she was also moving interstate at the time and she was like you know they have a really nice short life and then they die and then you get a new rat (laughs) so i think yeah it's generally the lifespan is around three years but then if you you know take really good care of them and they live quite a long time maybe like five plus years wow i think it'd be like three and a half years but yeah (laughs) some old rats right there but they, they don't get very far. I mean, we're just getting into that whole thing, yeah, where they're explaining to the kid how to pronounce Uberwald. Uh, Uberwald. Or, or Uberwald, yeah. Uberwald. Too much pronunciation. Which does appear in many other Pratchett books, although oh. I think it first sort of makes a big appearance in the books that came out around the same time as this one. There's one that we haven't covered yet, but one of the next ones we're going to be looking at is... Um, uh, Carpe Jugulum or Carpe Jugulum, another one. I'm it's not sure. It's kind of their Transylvania, isn't it? Like to a degree, like it's their supernaturally weird place, which is yeah. why perhaps they are more willing to accept talking cats <laughs> and rats quite quickly. Mm. Like there's an initial surprise, then like, all right, sure. Yeah, it's that place where where everything's a bit spooky and creepy. The sort of you know Eastern European country where the creepy stuff happens. Mm. Yeah, a little bit German, a little bit Eastern European sort of flavor. Um, and obviously, yeah. obviously a bit German because this is where the Pied Piper is, um, and Hamelin mm-hmm. is a is a German place, and that's where the story comes from. But they don't they don't get very far on their coach ride when they're stopped by a highwayman. And this is clearly a highwayman from Uberwald because he has this whole list of questions before he's happy to do his crime. He's <laughs> just like, is there a vampire in there? Are there witches? <laughs> Are you werewolves? And you also learn about um, the boy's honesty because he says no to all of that or maybe his intelligence because you're not sure whether he is actually just very honest or very dumb to a degree in the <laughs> thing because he will not lie even if it's to his favor, even when Morris is trying to tell him to. But it's not sure whether he's doing that because he wants to be honest overall or if he's not thinking through what the options would be. Yeah, I I got the impression he wasn't really dumb. He's just quiet. Like, because later in the book, particularly when he's talking to Militia, he knows what he's talking about. He's sharp, but in a quiet kind of reserved way. I don't know. That's how I sort of... But if you're sharp in a quiet and reserved way, wouldn't you be like, yeah, we got 10 werewolves? (laughs) I think I'm sort of in the same mind as Ben because... First of all, he can play a multitude of instruments. So he's got to have, you know, an iota of intelligence. But then he sort of, when he starts to sort of speak up and he's like, yeah, I do have a name and it's Keith. You sort of see that he has just been listening. I think he's definitely still a bit of a dummy. 
but not as dumb as we're led to believe. And then when he's, you know, sort of mm. bargaining with the Pied Piper at the end. Yeah, and that was his, yeah. I- you know, that was partly his idea. I mean, Maurice sort of improved that plan. But he also, you know, he has the idea that deals with the, the rat catchers. And yeah, I think he's pretty sharp. But he's he, he's a bit like Carrot, who's a main character in the Watch series of books, where they make the distinction that simple is not the same as stupid. Mm. And I think that this he's in, this is another character who, who sort of is in that mold, I feel. Do you think he develops over the course of the book? Or is it more like he's been like that from the beginning and only has the confidence to start showing it a bit more. My impression is that he was like that from the beginning, but developed the confidence. Because it does sort of, it feels like it comes out of nowhere, but it doesn't feel forced. Mm. Yeah. Well, they they do best the highwayman, though that is perhaps more due to Maurice than anyone else. And I do really like how they introduce Maurice and the rats as sort of like voices initially, because that's the thing that comes through the whole book. Like a mysterious voice starts talking and you don't know who it is. And you slowly learn that the boy is not alone. He's talking to a bag full of rats (laughs) and a cat. Yeah. (laughs) And um, when the highwayman tries to steal the money, the rats get sicked on him and it just all sort of works out very badly that the the drivers run away. Um, In the end, the highwayman is the one who's robbed and he ends up with a rat up his trousers, which is no one's ideal Saturday. (laughs) Because they're they're just sort of on their way to to find a new town to run their con. But, you know, when the the highwayman stops and they're just like, let's just go to the nearest one, Uh, which turns out to be the town of Bad Blintz, which is a great name. (laughs) For a town. Much better than Scrote. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's got, I like how it has like a history to it where, you know, it used to be like a town where they had special baths and people would come to use the baths there. And that has all gone downhill, partly because of this horrible rat infestation. Do you think it's a metaphor for how it used to be a clean town, but now it's a dirty town for lots of different reasons? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah. I also love that. It sounded at the start like Maurice was bullshitting to the rats and to the clan about what Bad Blinks was about. And then halfway through, Militia's like, oh, actually, yeah, we were known for our hot baths. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they have that sign about rat house as well. And he's like, oh, you know, like, it's like a council because, like, government is bad. And I'm like, that's bullshit. But it's real. Like, (laughs) rat house is actually the name of, like, a German council building. And I think that's bananas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. There's just so many cool things, little things that you pick up through this book. One of the things, though, before they get to the town, is they have the great discussion where we meet a couple of the important rats, dangerous beans and peaches, which is where we start to learn their names that they all have, which are just like the first things they could read on the labels of food as they became aware of themselves. Mm. Someone in our chat decided that your rat name is the first food labeling that you see after you wake up today. Oh. So my rat name today is Vapor Drops. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's Sliced Jalapenos. Oh, that's pretty good. I think mine is best before 11th of July 2020. <laughs> <laughs> we call you best before for short. <laughs> yes, BB. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty cool rat name. <laughs> I can't believe none of them were called that. Would you be a rat that is into Mr. Bunsy Has an Adventure, do you think? Or would you be less of a believer? Oh, I think I'd enjoy it as a text. 
but I don't know mm-hmm. if I would be a follower. Yeah, because that is that is the other thing that happens at the start of each chapter. We get a little excerpt from this kid's book, Mr. Bunsy Has an Adventure, which we find out the rats, in particular Dangerous Beans, who's kind of their spiritual leader, kind of. He's I, 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 it's a philosopher? Yeah, I went through an evolution of my understanding of what his role was through the book, which I think is intentional, because at the start it's just like, oh, he's the smart one, but then it's like, no, he's the one who thinks about ethics and stuff. He's the... He's the rat who's watched The Good Place, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but that becomes very important in this first section because this is where they have their discussion about ethics and the rats have decided what we're doing is not okay. And Morris is like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, really? Are you serious? And they're like, yeah, we're serious. We don't think we should do this anymore. And even the dumb kid is like, yeah, it doesn't seem right. <laughs> so they, d- they agree that this is the last time they're going to do it. One last heist before yeah. the band disbands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very much that, which is cool. I love that. Mm. Yeah, so they decide to do that. They go into the town and they split up in the way that they normally do. And we get very quickly an idea of how this operation functions because uh, Morris and the kid go into the town and wander around to check it out while the rats go under the town and scope it out. And they have this whole system where we meet a few of the other rats. We meet their leader, Ham and Pork who uh, is the old rat who was the leader from before they became smart, which happened because they were living behind Unseen University, the magical university, and they ate some of the magical waste that just gets dumped out the back. We don't know at this stage how Maurice got smart, but we assume it's something similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ham and porks, their big leader. We meet a, a few other rats, um, the important ones, including Darktan, who's the head trap finder who's just really smart and has worked out how all the traps work. And he's got a whole squad of people who go out and they know what all the different rat traps are and what the different poisons are. he wears are. a bunch of belts um, yeah. to keep stuff in because he's a military rat, but he's also like pockets are like having extra paws. So that's kind of cool imagery of him. So cool. Um, mm. So cool. Now there is in the works a feature film animated version of this book. And some of the early imagery had people going, what? Because Morris looked really fluffy and fancy. Uh, and the, some of the images of the rats had them wearing clothes. And you're like, that's kind of the opposite of what happens in the book. And I didn't really understand people's objection. But now I've read it. I'm kind of like, yeah, look, that's a very Disneyfied version of what happens in the book. And Terry Pratchett's in there um, asking how would a rat wear pants way before it was a meme. <laughs> <laughs> on the oh, front true. legs or on the hind legs? <laughs> One on each diagonally. He's yeah. ahead of his time uh, mm-hmm. again. They start heading out, exploring under the town. We also meet Sardines, who's probably one of my favourite rats. Who's the? He lived in a theatre. That was his whole thing. And so now he like knows how to dance. But he's also the most nimble one, so he's one of their scouts. He also ate a bunch of grease paint, so it's gotten into his blood. Oh, yeah, yeah he really so reminds me of the theatre cat in Cats. Huh. Oh. Who, who is also obsessed with the theatre. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's so meta. I can see as that. Well. There is a musical version of this book as well. Uh, really? It's been adapted as a musical for primary schools. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're hoping we might cover that on a future, maybe a bonus episode of the podcast. Ooh. There has been another theatrical adaption as well. In fact, I think there's been a couple. But yeah, there, there is a musical version. But it's for primary schools, so the songs are very simple and it's not very long. Um, and I think it simplifies the story a bit. But it, I'm still like, primary schools? It's, okay, it's dark. Right. Yeah. It's a dark book. I mean, upper primary school kids, I think, would love this, but we'll we'll come back to that question. I think. But yeah, we meet the we meet these other rats. They go out under the town and they discover that 
hey, there's something weird going on here. Well, because they've got the whole thing where the first thing they see in town is a notice saying, if you catch a rat, we pay you 50 cents or 50p per tail. Hmm. And then the rat catchers come through, these two shifty men with a dog, and they've got 200 today. And Morris notices something about the tails that doesn't look quite right. But um, when they go to touch them, they're like, oh, you don't want to touch that? You'll get plagued. Your legs will explode. It's bad. Just don't touch them. Um, anyway, off we go. Um, and everyone's real poor in the town as well. So it's just the town has a sort of a real Lord Farquhar vibe to it, except like not as tidy. Yeah. And while they're finding this stuff out about the town, they also meet a redheaded girl who's like, are you talking to that cat? <laughs> just immediately like, hmm. Uh, and they do not keep this talking cat a secret from everyone for very long. She She's onto them immediately. But yeah, while that's happening under the town, the rats are discovering that there's a lot of rat traps and poison here, but there's no rats. Like, we can't find any rats anywhere. And this is starting to trouble them, but they've already sent out in this great scene where they assemble all the squads and send them out. So there's the trap finders, but then there's also the whittling squad. <laughs> The light whittlers and the and the heavy whittlers. <laughs> yeah, they just sent out to just urinate on things and make a nuisance of themselves. And they quickly realize we don't need to do that. This town already thinks there's rats everywhere, and yet we can't find any. So it's already getting spooky and weird, and something is definitely off. And I thought that was really interesting because I, I expected that we would see a regular heist or the end of one, like a regular con, before we'd see the one where it all goes wrong and we just sort of straight get into the one where it all goes wrong and i think actually that's a great choice because we can totally see how this scam would work we don't need to see it in action to understand it and we get that from the way they describe how things normally go and how things have gone wrong here i feel like if it was a normal children's book that would have been the whole plot like but we got to halfway through the book i'm like oh the plot's done what's gonna be the rest of the story because i thought the big villains were going to be the rat catchers and they are but not for the reasons that I thought they were going to be. Mm. And then after that, like, I was like, oh, okay, here's the second plot. That's the big thing. And that still wasn't it. There was like a darker one underneath it all as well. And I'm like, what is going on with this, like, supposedly for a children's book? <laughs> yeah. that, but you had the Enid Blight in half. And then you had like, I don't know, the, the Jasper Ford third after that. And then the Neil my mouth has run out. Yeah. And like, mm. after that, it's just like, and now we're back to Pied Piper, but, mm. but not quite. Well, this yeah. is this is kind of the thing with Militia in the book is that, you know, she's trying to turn it into this sort of weird hybrid of an inner blighton story and, a, you know, a grim fairy grim. tale because she's expecting some horrible stuff, but she's also expecting that, you know, they're going to foil the smugglers and come out on top. And then, yeah, what's really going on is much more real and full on than that, which I, I love. And I guess we're getting into it now. The mm. I think the upper primary school level of kids, like older kids in primary school, we're talking like 10 to 12 years old and obviously a bit older than that too. But I think they would really love this. Like they don't like being talked down to. Mm. And and obviously, you know, not every child's the same and some children even at, you know, 12 years old are going to find this a bit full on and confronting. But a lot of them really love going there with this stuff. And, you know, one of my jobs is to uh, run creative writing workshops with kids that age and when you say to them, you can write about whatever you want, they write about people having wars and horrible monsters tearing people apart and all this like creepy, gross stuff. They're interested in that horror. And though they find it hard to write about themselves, they're also interested in what's behind that mm. and the ethics behind that. Whereas for younger kids, like five to eight year olds, 
oh, hey, this is full, this is too full on, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think. And it's a problem that, you know, there's children's books, but after about, I don't know, eight years old, they don't really put ages on them. And so you're kind of left to read and, and judge it for yourself. Like there's nowhere on this book, like my copy doesn't even say that it's for younger readers anywhere on the outside of the book. I didn't really feel like it was even when I was reading it, except for how every so often that explained something that to me didn't need to be explained, probably just because it wasn't the first time I was reading about the concept. So like to me, yeah. that was the main thing that made it for younger readers was not assuming prior knowledge of similar books and themes, if that makes sense. That and the protagonists are, are kids as well. You know. But I don't necessarily think that makes it a kid's book. There, are there any kid's books where the protagonists are adults? Not very many. There's got to be, I think. Like, it surely has to, statistically there has to be, but I can't think of any that I enjoyed as a kid where... No. Yeah. No, they're always... I mean, sometimes they're a bit older than you. It's like, you know, TV shows for kids, often the protagonists are teenagers, even if, you know, the kind of main age group watching them are primary school kids because it's aspirational. It's like, I want to be like that when I'm a little bit older. And all Goosebumps characters were 12, <laughs> like all of them. Oh, really? Yeah, I always remember, like, I'm a 12-year-old with tan legs and I wore day-glow shorts and, like, it was always they were 12. See, I, mi I'm, I missed – they were a thing when I was, like, in the second half of high school, so I totally It's not too late, Ben. You can catch uh, up. <laughs> okay, I will. But, yeah, like, on the outside of my book, there's nowhere where it says a Discworld book for younger readers. But that is definitely how it was marketed. And it, it, was, it was the cause of Terry Pratchett winning his first major literary award. It won the Carnegie Medal, which is huh, for children's yeah. literature. So, you know, it's, it is, a, it's, a, it is an interesting book in that place, but I, you know, I, I certainly would be happy to hand this over to a kid who I knew could handle the themes in it. Like, I wouldn't just give it to any old 10 year old. Well, like one walking past you on the street. Hey, kid, read this book. book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we'll come back to this, I think, because it is, it is a question we got from a couple of people and, and one of our listeners in particular. But yeah, I, it gets, it gets pretty full on fairly quickly. Yeah. I also like how much we learn about the culture that the rats are developing in this early part mm. of the book. You know, they still have this, this holdovers from the before times when they were, you know, quote unquote, just rats, which is how they think of themselves before they became intelligent. Um, and that's sort of personified by Hammond Pork, their leader who just follows all the old ways and like he doesn't like all this carrying a candle with us and lighting it business. Like we should be scurrying around in the dark, like, like proper rats and, um, he doesn't hold with all this newfangled stuff like writing that they've invented and the writing that the rats invent. Oh, mm. so good. It's I love it. Cool. All the little pictograms. Yeah. And it's just a quick note about the rat names that I thought was interesting because Ham and Pork was born before the change happened and Dangerous Beans was born just after, wasn't it? He was like one of the first ones born afterwards, I think, is the idea. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure if this is just me trying to look too deeply into it, but I felt like there was a certain stratification of the names in that Ham and Pork was like basically like simple straightforward food name then you have dangerous beans which is like something changing over like it's like two things coming together then the younger rats were called things like delicious and nourishing mm -hmm. and stuff like that which is more descriptive words rather than of the object or the thing itself so it kind of felt mm. like the names reflected the generational thinking changes to a degree well that's interesting yeah i hadn't thought of that because yeah they have different themes and you could almost group them mm. like peaches is a literal food but, um, yeah, nourishing and stuff is descriptors of food. What yeah. is the um the head the head mama's rat's name? 
t- dark t- hand. Oh, no, the, there's the, a mother the, oh. rat that they're all quite terrified oh, of. Yeah. Big savings. Big savings. <laughs> yes. That's an amazing name. It is a great name. And it just sort of in- it just conjures this like, you know, larger than average rat who's just like, you come near my babies, I'll kill you. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is it's so and good. And real pragmatic too. Like, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, because they they do say in the book that you know one of the things they're dealing with during this run is that some of the rats are pregnant and they're going to have their babies soon, so they've got to stay away from all of the trap finding and fighting and stuff. And Big Savings is like, yeah, and I'll look after them, and they're all like, yeah, don't don't mess with them, don't mess with Big Savings. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Her and Ham and Pork have definitely had some real. Oh, for sure. That's why he's terrified mm. of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, this is. Uh, I, I mean, because some of the names I also are like, these are like the nicknames you get in prison, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like it, feel, it feels a bit like yeah, that delicious. as well. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. Or big savings or uh, dangerous beans. <laughs> like, Why is it called that? Don't ask. <laughs> like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, I should say they're the kind of names, nicknames you get in prison in a comedy show about prisons, not in a real prison. <laughs> But yeah, the, the rat language is really interesting because there's two rat languages in the book, of course. As you just mentioned, there's the noises that come from the original way that rats communicated before they got smart. And then there's the new pictographic written language that they're trying to create for themselves, which is all little pictures of rats doing things or with other kind of symbols that make sense to rats, which is really Hieroglyphics. Cool. Yeah. Or pictograms. Uh, yeah, they're, I really liked it. And it doesn't come back until sort of towards the end of the book. It only sort of crops up a few times. For sad reasons. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, they they have their argument underground and they add some new rules. They've got these rules. And this is where you sort of get this idea that, you know, Dangerous Beans is kind of a spiritual thinker. He's blind, so he can't really see, except he can kind of distinguish light and dark. He can't see, but he can see. He's got a third eye. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's not clouded by the real world. He's thinking into the the deeper world. He's their guru. Mm-hmm. Um, he's their lobsang. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're they're getting freaked out underground. Meanwhile, Militia, the red-headed girl, what a great name, by the way, mm-hmm. Militia. And she's scared that they're going to find the name funny. And then Morris is like, "No, I mean," and then he thinks through all the the rat names. He knows, like, "No, that sounds like a pretty normal name to me." <laughs> yeah, my friends have great names that are no weirder than that. Yeah. But yeah, she's immediately, she's already describing him and everything about the story. And like Terry Pratchett obviously has a bit of a love for the Cambellian kind of hero with a thousand faces, which we've discussed before on the podcast. But here she's basically asking him the questions and going, so you had a mysterious birth and you don't know who your parents were. And you're like, oh, you're clearly going to be a hero. And he's like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> The strawberry yogurt's probably just not relevant to, to the whole thing. We'll just ignore that. Yeah. Because she's editing his life as she goes because the story is what matters to her. It's interesting because like, she posits things. She asks questions, but there not that right kind of questions? Like, oh, I bet you were um, a cat that belonged to a witch and I bet she lived in a gingerbread cottage. And when Morris tries to push back and was like, no, it was made of saltines because she was slimming, she doesn't like that because it doesn't fit in with her image. So She's a journalist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's got an angle. She's a journalist mm-hmm. for, like, Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, like, documenting all of the witches and stuff. Back to the cat that is developing a conscience. 
we'd see that in action because uh, sardines turns up in the house trying to do his like oh, i'm gonna tap dance over your butter routine and annoy everyone because that's his job in the scam and the other two are like no something's not right here she's gonna notice you um and she does and freaks out and um he nearly gets squashed behind a dresser um i thought and- he was dead like i'm like oh my god they've killed a major character that i was coming to like like a third of the way into the book what, like what chapter book is four be? yeah i i thought he was done for and um uh, but no he's he's okay thankfully yeah, and i love that that you know they're quite happy to like destroy a whole like a uh, cabinet full of crockery to save one rat the description uh, of that crockery being destroyed was out of control <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because it's just something that you it's just so vivid but you could tell that it was really important to Pratchett <laughs> like, yeah. it had to be seen and heard you can't just sort of throw it away it can't happen off screen no, no. should we read it out <laughs> yeah I reckon so get out of the way shouted Keith he grabbed the back edge of the dresser with both hands and braced one foot against the wall and heaved slowly Like a mighty forest tree, the dresser pitched forward. The crockery started to fall out as it tipped, plate slipping off plate like one glorious chaotic deal from a very expensive pack of cards. Even so, some of them survived the fall onto the floor, and so did some of the cups and saucers as the cupboard opened and added to the fun, but that didn't make any difference because then the huge heavy woodwork thundered down on top of them. One miraculously whole plate rolled past Keith, spinning round and round and getting lower mm. on the floor with a sound you always get in these distressing circumstances. It's, it, you're right, it's so good. It's so out of control. I feel like it's happened to him and he's just trying to vent about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's so awful. Yeah, it's like yeah. miraculous that these, you know, a cup and a plate are still intact. Yeah. It also feels like the sort of writing you do when you've sat at your desk for like seven hours and not written anything good like you're just like oh everything's bad and then you're you're like all right it's time to make a cup of tea and you're about to stand up and you have an idea you're like oh no this is it and then you just (laughs) smash it all out in one go and that's the kind of thing you come up with like it doesn't feel like something you can write piecemeal it's something that you're just like no no, i'm getting it all out right now after a real struggle of a day and like all of your anger about not having done good work feels into this like one thing and that's how it felt to me <laughs> yeah brain dump yeah i mean it's also the the kitchen equivalent of when the car explodes and the wheel rolls out which pratchett has also done in um, with a wagon in one of his <laughs> other books so i quite enjoy he that. loves an action scene mm-hmm. oh he does yeah oh he really does i mean he i mean we said this before but it, particularly his books that are not for kids they don't have chapters, and so they just sort of go from scene to scene to scene like a feature film, and they have a very cinematic quality to them, both in the way that he describes the visuals but also in the way that he crosses from one scene to another and comes back. He does the literary equivalent of shot matching a lot of the time, and it's a bit it's a bit different when he's writing in chapters for kids, but still, yeah, very visually rich, his descriptions. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but they do save uh, sardines, few. Because he's so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love him so much. And Militia realizes something weird is going on in the town uh, based on what they've told her. And she hides them because her dad's coming home, who it turns out is the mayor, or as Morris was, insists on referring to him as the government. <laughs> uh, which I, I quite liked. She can't would feel like that. 
Like a hundred percent. Yeah, I love the way yeah. he speaks because it's exactly how I imagine a cat would speak. Mm. And the contempt, but also like, yeah, keep talking nonsense and just you keep giving me more curdled milk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not completely hard yet, but yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, the the rats underneath the town uh, are still exploring and still getting more freaked out at this point. Um, there's just so many traps it inspires them to have all these great discussions about the bone rat who comes to get you when you die. And this, this is a character that if we've read the Discworld books before this, we've already met the death of rats. And I was like, he's got to be in this book. And he does not get treated with respect when he finally has his big scene. No, that's true. <laughs> he's so secondary. <laughs> that's right. He doesn't speak at all. No, he squeaks. A little bit. Yeah, he's sort of just like, hey, I'm here, and then Death is like, shut up, shut up, shut up. And Morris pounces on him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's very disrespectful. Yeah. Like, what? why? Because there's nothing to eat. It's bones. But that's not why cats do it, is it? No, it's and it's it's not. It's specifically not why Morris does it in that moment either. Mm. Oh, no, I've, I've, I've totally gone over to the Morris team now. Yeah. Um, the Morris side. You're doing the full Morris dance. That's a joke for all the Morris dancers out there. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're freaking out um, because there's so many traps that someone, one of the members dies in one. Yeah, he gets squished. And then another rat eats some poison that they haven't seen before and is going to die. And Dark Tan's like, oh, this is going to be gro-. Like, put him in a trap, put him out of his misery. And you're like, whoa, these rats are dealing with some harsh stuff. Was that one of their rats or was that just a rat that they found that was one of the locals? There was one of their rats, both of those. But then they do find one of the local rats who's they call Kikis, is like, you know, normal rats who aren't smart like them, who is still alive. And they're like, what are we going to do about this? Because she's real scared. Mm. Yeah. So they take her back to, to meet with the others. And meanwhile, Militia is keeping Keith and, and Morris in the loft of <laughs> the barn. <laughs> Where they're like, why are we in here? And there's the whole great comedy business with the secret knock and all the very famous five nonsense. It's great. Where the other two are like, why do you need a secret knock? Like, just say it's you. <laughs> it's not. Uh, she's read too many Secret Seven books and you have to have the password. Otherwise, Susie will get in. It's like Secret Valley, you know? Did, it, uh, did, you, did you ever see that show? It was a show about these kids who had like a, a secret camp in this valley and they were like always just, you know, getting up to fun hijinks. But then there was like a developer who wanted to buy the area and turn it into, I don't know, something else. And so he employed these bad kids to always mess up the Secret Valley plans, one of whom was called Spider. That's which is, ooh, that's like, mm, the spoilers ahead. And it's Spider's gang who gets employed by this adult to screw up all of the plans of the Secret Valley kids. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. It is great. Um, but yeah, it gave me that, a little bit of that kind of vibe, the whole militia deal. But she's like, Hey, look, the rat catchers are meeting with the mayor. That means they're not going to be at their place. We know something's up with them because you're saying that the rat tails that they're bringing are not all real ones. Some of them are bootlaces. Let's go check out their shed. And that is, oh, so in it, Blighton. It hurts, particularly when she brings her bag of stuff. So what you're saying is that the girl, Morris and Keith form a militia. <laughs> I am definitely not saying that. <laughs> um, I are. think you are. <laughs> and I I will respect that choice that you have made there. 
Yes, um, but yeah, they go to the shed or the the place, and they they make some discoveries. They try and lean on things and pull books off shelves, and there's no secret doors. And Malicia's very disappointed. And then Keith goes, "Why is there a rat hole in a rat catcher's shed? Why would any rats come in here?" And then they stick their hand in there, and there's a secret lever, and he falls through a trapdoor in the floor. That's <laughs> so. I like that he's smart, but he's the one undone by it as well and he feels Mm -hmm. you just feel he's so hard done by in this book poor old keith like first of all no one's asked him his name ever before now he has smart ideas and then he you know is the one who cops the bad stuff that happens as a result it's just yeah just dumped on the musicians guild with nothing but a shopping list like it's just he hadn't had a good run of it yeah, it's just a it's just a beautiful sequence as they break in and it is clearly inspired by all those, you know, kids' own adventure books. But meanwhile, like the other rats are talking with the local rat who who has survived a trap and it's really scared by something that the other rats don't understand what it is and, and they're not sure what to do. And this is another turning point for the rats where they're like, Well, we better look after this rat now. But ham and pork's like it's not one of us. Just let it go. And they're like, no, it'll get into a trap or eat some poison and die. Like, it's one of us now. He gets real pushback from the other rats who are like, we're not just going to do what you say because we're not just rats anymore. And we know what's right and wrong. And there's a real tense moment where they feel like maybe there's going to be a challenge for who's going to lead. And then it gets diffused through talking, which is, again, something that the rats are not used to. And Darktan's like, we're going to investigate what's going on and see if we can find the source of whatever scared this rat. And Hemport mm. insists that he's going to go with them. So they head off to find it, which is, yeah, it's a great sequence there that really tells you a lot. And Pratchett apparently did a whole bunch of research. Like in his notes at the end of the book, he says he learned way more about rats yeah. than he ever thought he needed to know. So you assume that this is based on research on rat behavior. Rat culture. Yeah, yeah rat culture. Rat culture. Rat bag culture. <laughs> I looked up rat kings after this and I, it's a very um, vivid, some vivid imagery in there. But there's all this dispute about whether rat kings are real and whether they're natural, a natural occurrence, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And that's sort of reflected in the story too. Mm. That's a horrifying concept. Yeah, it is. I'd sort of heard about them, but I hadn't heard about any of the supernatural stuff that comes in in this book. I thought it was genuinely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, There's something else I watched or read that had a rat king in it, and I can't remember what it is, and I'm not sure if it was on TV or if it was a book, but I can see it's over his... It reminds me of a Doctor Who episode, sorry listeners, you have to drink now, where (laughs) there's a famous shot where they use a model of a sewer and a normal rat, but the rat is like somebody's trained pet rat, so it's like all looks fluffy and perfectly clean, even though it's supposed to be living in a sewer. (laughs) It's very silly. And they have these giant rat puppets that attack people as well. There's parts of that story that are great. There's other parts that are like have not stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, rats are just such a great creature for any kind of folklore or weird stuff. Like, there's a whole thing with them in Neverwhere, where the, mm. there's a clan of people, the rat speakers, who who speak to them. The rats don't work for them. It's the other way around. Yeah. Uh, there's, like, yeah, I think shades of that in, in this as well, which is quite nice. But we've got to get to the reveal, like, of we what do. happened. Yeah. Once they fall into this secret compartment under the rat catcher's shed, there's all the food that's gone missing that the town has assumed has been eaten or stolen by the rats, it's not. It's being hoarded by the rat catchers. The militia was saying that the rats take a hundred times more than they eat, 
which is not true in Morris's experience. He says they take more like 10 times. And as I noticed earlier, the town is on rations. They're really low on food. A guy offers to buy Morris for um, four loaves of bread and Militia says, oh, he didn't want you to catch rats. He wants to eat you. Yeah, full on. Mm. Militia's all like, oh, the mystery's solved. Let's go. And Keith's like, no, I'm not coming with you. There's still something else weird going on. They've got all this netting. What do they need netting for? And they get into the room next door. And the exploration party with Darktan and Ham and Pork and the other rats who went with them is also there. And they both find the same thing, which is a massive cage full of rats who have clearly, from the evidence, been forced to eat each other. They just sort of fight and kill and eat each other. And so only the strongest are left. Horrible. There's something else, though, going on in this room. It's not just that. Although the fear of the rats in the cage is, like, kind of palpable and it freaks out the rat party of the clan which is what they call themselves i don't know if we mentioned that yet but the thinking rats call themselves the clan and a bunch of them run away and only like dark tan and ham and pork are left and some of them regress like they're so scared they forget how to talk yeah they're so scared that they've regressed to just being rats which is that really sad moment when dangerous bean sees that and he goes no i thought we were better than this but something freaked him out and they're just gone back to being just rats and he's so like heartbroken by this realization that underneath all the thinking they're still just animals i think this seems a really interesting intersection of a lot of the themes in the book like one of the major themes is like what makes you human or like what makes you a rat so what makes you a conscious being that exists in a society and we see the rats develop that through their own discussions about the book about um conscience that kind of thing we also see Morris as one happens separately. Like there's the scene earlier where he catches a mouse and kills it and he feels a bit bad about it and he tries to justify it to Keith who really isn't judging him or pushing him but he clearly is judging himself and he's doing, no, like it doesn't, it, I gave it the chance to talk, it didn't, so I, I ate it, it's fine, but like he keeps going and you can see that he's developing guilt. I mean I wrote a note that said guilt and nothing else. <laughs> but in this scene, you have the humans, you have the rats, and you have Morris, and you see how they all differently react to it. Because militia is like, all right, we can leave, but the rats, like, no, we got to release them. Like, we got to let the rats out. Ham and pork, especially, is like, this is not okay. Like, he's full of rage about it. Yeah, and it shows the different levels of development and conscience. I think in characters and how they respond because there is a whole lot of tribalism as well. So, like, there's the changeling rats. Some of them feel like. Only we are the ones that matter. Other rats aren't us, so that doesn't matter. And we've seen that in the scene before. Um, Militia's like, well, rats are nothing and they can be killed initially, so mm. why, why would we help them? Keith was still figuring out. And Morris is still grappling with his cat instincts and being part of the society because there's no other cats for him to interact with as well. So, like, where does he quite fit in? It's kind of him on his own trying to figure out what's his culture or, like, what's leading his morals and things like that and i don't know if that's me reading too deeply into it but i feel like this scene is like a melting pot or a moment that just sort of shows where everyone's at in terms of their development and like for example morris got um intelligent a little bit after the rat so is it just that there's an inevitable point where you'll reach that level of conscience like he gets there a little bit after the rats is that because he started a little bit later or is that him as an individual and i mean there's also the way that they think about humans like this scene is also an example of that because keith and militia are arguing about what they're going to do keith's like yeah we should let these rats out like that's what ham and pork wants us to do and Militia's like you can't let them out they're the horrible rats like no and while they're arguing and being very human as the as, as morris puts it that's when the rat catchers turn up and they're like taken unawares 
And then the, the scene turns into this clash of expectations between how the inner blighton version of the story or the even the grim fairy tale version of the story should go and a much more realistic and horrifying portrayal of thugs who are happy to rough up kids it's it's kind of upsetting yeah yeah and like it's interesting because like it seems like one of the rat catchers actually is like a proper guild member and the other one is like just not so that's renegade mm. yeah and you have to wonder like what we learn about the rat catchers guild is not great in this book <laughs> Like, they're gross. No, they sound like a real frat. Like, oh, yeah, get in, you got to tie a bunch of rats together. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's gross. And also fiddly. Yeah. And as this sort of scene gets to its climax, you know, Morris hides away from the um, rat catchers so they don't see him. Most of the clan rats run away, except for Ham and Pork, uh, who gets caught by the rat catchers. And they all hear this voice. And we experience it from Morris's perspective, where he hears this voice in his head, which is talking to him but can't quite figure out what he is. Then it figures out he's a cat and goes nuts and says, like, kill him! And these rats, these bigger rats that have been hiding somewhere in the under the town that the other rats couldn't find, leap out and try to attack him. And it's, it's really creepy. Yeah. And before long, he ends up swimming in this disgusting poop vat, which um, made me <laughs> want to throw up a whole lot because... Yeah. Because you know how cats clean themselves? It's they lick it off. Well, and he has to resist that urge. And it's one of <sighs> several times during the book where he, you know, his ability to think and the fact that he's been given this sort of like consciousness and self-awareness and language thinking brain allows him to overcome his natural cat instincts, which is beneficial to him many times in the book. And this is one of them. Yeah. As I heard you say that my cat, because I've locked him out of my bedroom, he did a bit of a yowl. Oh, dear. He was like, yeah, I am in agreement with this. I don't want to deny my instincts as a feline. Aww. Yeah, I wonder how he'd do in this book. <laughs> I think he'd be even more hardcore than Maurice. Mm-hmm. He'd be a real dangerous bean. He really would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a cross between dangerous beans, Dark Chan, and Ham and Pork, I think. Hmm. Well, um, we actually get to see how tough Ham and Pork really is in the real dark bit of the book where we, re- we find out what the actual subplot is they're not just stealing the food and stuff the reason that these guys are catching rats is so they can do fights between the rats and dogs and people can bet money on it yeah they imply this is like a you know a side benefit that a lot of rat catchers have which is if you catch all the rats you can breed them up to be strong and then you can go to the rat coursing which morris explains what it is to the other clan rats because they're like you've seen this and he's like yeah i saw this once the humans like put a bunch of rats in a little pit where they can't get out because the wall's too high and they put dogs in there with them. And this is one of those things that is real. It really happens. People have done it historically, probably horrendously. People still do it now in some places. And it's gross. And the clan rats are like, well, that's not okay. We've got to go rescue Hammond Pork because they've seen him as a big, strong, fighty rat. And they're like, yeah, we're going to take him. He's going to be amazing. One of the worst things is that they make the rats tough by putting them all in a thing together and rats will fight and eat each other. So the ones that are left are the strongest ones, which is kind of like a horror version of the thing that I do with M&Ms, which is to make them fight each other. Like you, you hold two together and you oh. push them and see which one cracks. And the one that's weak and cracks, you eat that one. And then the winner goes on to the next round. I have Liz, that is chilling. I have seen this before, <laughs> though, except with Skittles. But same deal. Ah, uh, Skittles, they're, you know, M&M's, they're more unpredictable. Well, surely with M&M's it would be the peanut ones who were the strongest. True, because they've or, got a... Or the crispy. Do you mix the streams that way, Liz? 
Or are you a I purist? Do, I go with a classic M&M. Um, I found that the brown ones are generally the strongest. Maybe because they have less dye in them. Yeah, true. Anyway, I'm going to have to get some M&Ms and, and just, you know, do a really boring Instagram live where I spend an hour yeah. just eating M&Ms. And then an anthropomorphic M&M is going to come in into your bowl. Mm-hmm. And start eating itself <laughs> with brethren. But yeah, um, so that's some insight into my only child hobbies. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but before we get to the rat coursing, there are a couple other things that are important that happen. Morris escapes from the horrible mud hole. <laughs> we won't yeah, speak no more Thank you for calling of. it mud hole, yeah. And he finds dangerous beans and the others. And this is, again, where he's so dejected that the rats have just been reduced to being regular rats when they're scared. And, and Morris says something about that where he's like, yeah, you know, one rat can be smart, but a bunch of rats are a mob, which is a, you know, a recurring theme that Pratchett says about humans as well. Mm. And it's depressing, but there's an element of truth in it. Mm-hmm. And... uh yeah, they, they realize what's going on. They decide they're going to go rescue ham and pork. And Morris is like, that's not a good idea. And then they also decide they need to go back and save Keith and Militia because they're still tied up in the cellar. They go back there. They free Militia and Keith, but they're still arguing about stuff. And Darktan and the team head to the barn where the rat coursing is going to happen. And they come up with this great plan to save him. And this was like, this, this was like Ocean's Eleven levels of cool heist business. I really enjoyed this sequence. Like, cause you think it's going to be, and it is, there's some horrible stuff that happens, but then there's the big heroic moment as well, which kind of, I don't, I, I don't know. I really, I got into it. Yeah. So when they talk about the dog that he's supposed to fight, there's a really good passage. It said, Jacko was not a bad dog according to the way of dogs. He was a terrier and he liked killing rats in any case and killing lots of rats in the pit meant that he got well fed and called a good boy and wasn't kicked very often. Some rats did fight back and that wasn't much of a problem because they were smaller than Jacko and they had a lot more teeth. And I feel like that gets to the core of a lot of things as well because a lot of the book is about the individual thinking versus acting within a community. And personifying the dog as well is good because he is also a victim. But he also yeah, felt for Jacko. Yeah, thinks as an individual because yeah, he, he obviously gets beaten if he doesn't do well. And yeah, just shows the malleability of morals or like how being morally on the fence is its own kind of evil to a degree. Mm. Like he's not evil, but because he is not taking a stance either way, it's easy for him. You can't get swayed to the side of good by default. You have to choose it. Mm. So yeah, not like- yeah, not making a choice is is making the wrong choice that makes sense or no choice yeah yeah and of course he's still you know in the parlance of the rats just a dog you know he's not smart Mm self-aware thinking creature like the rats or morris or or the humans he's also in that way not really capable of proper cruelty because just as he can't really choose to be good he can't really choose to be bad either he's just sort of reacting yeah yeah so i thought that like really small bit Really added a lot of depth to that scene. Yeah, yeah. But then let's get to the cool shit, like where they get away. Yeah, this is cool. So this is where Sardines like gets his moment of glory because he's been carrying this string with him and he's like, yeah, this string's really useful. You should have lots of string. And he's got like another rat with him who's just coming along to carry his string. Uh, and so they climb out. Power. Yeah. Um, and they, they wait until uh, Ham and Pork is let into the the rat arena to fight Jacko the dog 
and he's making a bit of a fist of it, but like he's going to get beaten because ham and pork, for want of a better term, he goes kind of feral. Like he doesn't, he, he thinks of more than your average rat, but he still like lets the rage overcome him and he's just sort of fighting like a slightly smarter rat, um, which takes Jacko by surprise, but not for long. Jacko bites him. He gets injured pretty badly. Um, but the other rats are like, we're not having this. And so sardines comes down on his string from a rafter above the pit with rubber bands like a bungee jumper <laughs> and he grabs him <laughs> and then he's hanging on to him and they sort of because it's like the end of the rope is like springy he like starts going back up so he's out of immediate danger and as soon as he's out of the way dark tan leaps off with the other end of the string and a big heavy thing i think it's like a lantern or something and he crashes down into the pit on on top of i think he does he land on top of the dog i think he does um but then he fights the dog off once the others are out of harm's way um and he like has there's a great sequence where he runs up his back and then he bites him and then he bites him in the unmentionables <laughs> so, he, like, so he's gonna be played by the rock in the movie right uh dark tan <laughs> oh yeah okay because <laughs> it's just sure. like that scene where he's jumping off that tower but yeah it's just <laughs> oh yeah i know what you mean dwayne johnson good man yeah he'd do so a good job good. of any role like he he brings humor it's good yeah <laughs> uh but dark tan manages to escape the rat arena and run through the legs of all the humans, doesn't get stepped on, even though a few of them try, but he's running blindly to escape, and he runs straight into a rat hole, ignoring his own normal advice, which is never go into a hole unless it's been checked for traps, and he gets caught in a trap. And Mm. it's just like, that's the end of that sequence. And it's so quick, and just full of action, you're just like, and then it ends with this sort of like, oh no, is he going to die? Like, it's Mm. he got through all of that, and then he's, caught in a trap and he's the master trap finder it's like oh no i really like was not expecting that and it was yeah i had yeah. the sardines feels again i'm like they've killed another one like, wait no the first one didn't die but yeah 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 oh one other thing that happens in that chapter i should mention is this is the chapter where when he's talking with dangerous beans and peaches morris admits that the reason he's smart is he ate one of the clan and he's always known this, but he hasn't admitted it. And it's one of the reasons why now, whenever he eats anyone, he asks them if they can talk before he eats them. No, it to me, it's it undermines that thing that he's been doing because his rule is if it speaks, I don't eat it. And it seemed like he had that rule then, but he found out that that one had a stutter, so it didn't have enough time to talk. Oh, that's right. And so that messes oh, yeah. up his rule of if it doesn't talk, I can't eat it because you don't know for sure if that there was like a reason it wasn't talking at that moment oh, right. and talking doesn't mean intelligence. So to me, that was like, that was a moment where he was like, wait, this rule's not working. And he was already feeling bad about it. So yeah. Cause he was like, Oh, did he have a speech impediment? And they're like, yeah, sometimes it took him a while to, to say something. So yeah, that, that's what I thought was going on there. So was he already, was he already conscious or smart before? No, no he, he says so he wasn't. When, he says he was just a cat. Yeah. But then how could he have known? Yeah. But he still has guilt about it. Like, but yeah, he was just doing what a cat does, which is like... Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But that's how he got smart, because they've been teasing that through the whole book. Like, how did it... I was kind of, like, willing to accept it. He's near the university. It just kind of happened. But then mm. there was, like, this dark turn where he ate one of their number. And then yeah. they forgive him, too. They're like, well, do you feel bad about it? He's like, yeah, of course I feel bad about it. I have dreams about it. I have nightmares about it. I feel awful about it. And they're like, well, that's probably all right, then. And, and it's we some, absolve you. you know and it's it's a thing that i think people have said in real life is you know if you worry about whether you've done the right thing or you worry about whether you're a good person 
that it's it's not a guarantee, but it's a sign that probably you're at least trying to be. Because mm. if you weren't, you would be certain that whatever you did was all right. You wouldn't question yourself. It's not a hard and fast rule. There's, you know, your actions have to come into it as well, of course. But yeah, I think there's some some truth in that. And it's, I, I feel for Morris in that moment because I'm like, I have a lot of the anxiety and I often worry that I am not a good person or that I am not doing the right thing in the given moment. And I know I take it to extremes. That's what anxiety is. And yeah, I really felt for him in that moment. It's like, listen, buddy, don't blame yourself. You were just a cat. But, uh, and the smart rat that you ate couldn't tell you it was smart. And mm. even as a cat, you might have had a pause if someone had said that because you would not be used to eating talking rats. But yeah. Like the Jack, like Jacko, the terrier. Mm. Yeah. 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 So if they let Jacko eat one. No. <laughs> but now he, now he's aware. And, you know, and I think any of us who have learned better after we've done things, and, you know, that's a, at the time that we record this, there's a huge amount of learning going on for a lot of people who maybe have not thought enough about particularly matters of race, but lots of things where they're now thinking, I've really got to think about this and take it seriously. And you do, you do feel awful and that's appropriate, but you can't let that like, you know, stop be you the main acting. thing. Yeah. You've got to take the next step after that. And, and I feel like Morris has kind of done that, but then kind of kept that secret to himself and now he's like admitting it he feels terrible about it yeah anyway i, th- I felt that was a very relatable moment for him yeah can we talk about the scene that made me real mad at militia where they're talking about the book the the mr bunsey book oh yeah because peaches and dangerous beans and morris they go to free them because they're still mm-hmm. tied up in the cellar and they they do free them and then militia doesn't want to talk to them and I like the way that went because Keith is like, oh, I can understand if you've been brought up in this town that's had a rat plague and you hate rats. And she goes, oh, no, it's not that. It's just, it's too embarrassing. It's too Mr. Bunsy. And you're like, oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. Because <laughs> they, they take this book. It's like, it's like their holy book. Yeah. It's their text. And it's like, it shows them a vision of a, a better world where like humans and animals all get along and it's all very civilized and no one kills each other. And it's great. And it's kind of what's driving a lot of their thing that like after this they're hoping to go find this place or build their own version of it and she points out how it's like she starts criticizing it's like lack of storytelling because she's a storyteller and she talks about all of that stuff and she's like it doesn't even have any complexity no oral ambiguity the biggest complex thing is when a duck loses a shoe and i just found it so fascinating that she like tore it apart without thinking or seeing their reaction to it which clearly was happening and her whole thing is she doesn't like having her stories challenged. She wants everything to be a story, but she's very happy to ruin someone else's. And she even has all those quotes about like how story is important. Otherwise, you become part of someone else's story and not your own. And here she is, like for no reason at all, bowling over these rats' story. And she also, like, there's a degree of she didn't know how important it was to them, but it's just, yeah, it made me real mad at her because I was like, you know how important story is to you. Like, why would you do this to someone else? But mm. she's not consciously doing it. But yeah, still. Oof. Yeah. And Keith has that line where he sort of describes her as not listening to the tone in which people speak and really only listening to the words that they say, which, you know, is a, is a problem that a lot of people have um, where they don't, you know, they, they, they lack that empathy, um, you know, and it, and of course, some people, some people, for some people, that is a difficulty that they have difficulty learning that. But for some other people, they just don't care. And you get the sense that, I mean, and you know, you've got to 
cut these people some slack because they're only kids. They're still learning how to be in the world. But, no. But <laughs> Militia really... <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair. Liz is adamant. Uh, but yeah, but Militia at this point is really not interested in anybody else's business. Like, her story is central. Her opinion is central. Her feelings are central. Nobody else's really matter to her. Hmm. Which is interesting, I guess, shed some light on how maybe wise Keith might be in the fact that this whole time he has been listening um, and absorbing everything as opposed to just sharing his opinion willy-nilly. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He has emotional intelligence. Mm. And after she says that, Dangerous Bean and Peach, Peaches, they're just, they're just gone. They leave. Mm. And it's just really sad. And she has the goal to complain that they cut through their ropes too slowly as well. I'm like, excuse me. Oh. Oh, what a, oh, the worst. Yeah. I mean, she's the mayor's daughter. I guess she enjoys a certain amount of being revered. Yeah, but she's cancelled. Yeah, she's 100% cancelled. <laughs> oh, no. oh, Should we get to the tea party, though? Because I think that redeems her a bit. Oh, uh, yeah. Although <laughs> that is Keith's idea. Yeah, but the way she handles the, the poetic book ending. Oh, yeah, the poisoning true. is that I was like, no, I'll come around a bit to you. You've got some redeeming qualities. Yeah. The way they kind of play good cop, bad cop in a way where Keith's just like, yeah, this is like you, your head's going to explode. Cause the, the rat catchers come back, the two of them hide and the rat catchers make themselves a cup of tea and they drink it. And then a cup of Lord Green. Which yeah. I loved, Cause like almost Earl Grey. <laughs> yeah. That was great. And then they come out once they've drunk the tea and start talking about the poison do you know where your poison is? And they're like, no. And Keith says, well, I put most of it in your sugar. Because they were talking about how it how it tasted a bit funny. Is it different? Um, three spoons of sugar, please. And so they forced to confess a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, they confess that, yes, they stole all the food. And yes, they've been breeding up the rats to make money in the rat coursing. Although they seem a bit confused about whose idea that was exactly. Mm. And there's something else that they're not saying. And then eventually they get prodded into admitting that, one of them made a rat king because you have to. It's the masterpiece, which Keith explains in the old term meant exactly that. It's the piece you make in order to become declared a master. And for the Rat Catchers Guild, you've got to make a rat king. Which to be fair, they're very good at catching rats. So, like, he is a master. Yeah. Mm. And the rat king is kind of, you get the idea that you have to make a rat king to become a master rat catcher because it allows you to control other rats and catch them. But the danger is that it might also control you. And it seems like a pretty dumb idea for rat catchers to be making rat kings. Yeah. Mm. Because this rat king is still around. And in fact, it talks to Morris in this chapter and reveals its name is Spider. Oh, a spider. I could just fight you. No, no. Spider, not a spider. Spider with a capital S. They admit to it, uh, but they're all like, oh, what is going on? So the best bit, which is that she didn't poison them, she actually gave them laxative and promised them an antidote. And when they finally said everything, she gave them the antidote, which was more laxative. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> that, was that was amazing. <laughs> so good. It's just genius. Because she's carrying around this massive bag of like inner blight and adventure supplies. I also like the way that, you know, Keith is saying, don't blow your nose or your brains are going to come. Oh, you're going to need a big hanky anyway. And she's like going, this is amazing. And like writing down notes like she's never heard of this before. <laughs> I mean, she probably hasn't. Like she doesn't know how poisons work, but but Keith does because he's learned it from the clan. So there's mm. an element of reality to that discussion. But meanwhile, Dark Tan, trapped in the, in the trap, has a near-death experience. Mm. He sees a light and he's like, maybe this is when I'm going to meet the bone rat. You know, the pain all goes away. 
And then he's saved at the last minute by nourishing one of the young rats. A former light whittler, but um, he got a bit embarrassed about whittling on things in public because he's of the new generation of rats. He doesn't see the point of doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, comes back to life. And, but he's but he's changed by the experience, which is evidenced by the way. And I, I kind of like this little bit where there's an aside where instead of just describing what happened as it happens, he switches into talking about how many, many years later or, or a mm. long time later, Nourishing is telling this story to her grandchildren mm. and how Dark Tan takes one of their matches and he looks down and all the rat courses are still inside the barn and they can't escape. And he's like, I could drop this match and burn you all. And then he just stands there and lets the match burn out and doesn't do it because he's had this change of heart and this sort of sort of change of personality almost from his uh, experience. Hmm. Yeah. What next? Sorry, because like, like so much stuff happened in like a really short period of time. Yeah, like the plot really goes up a few notches because the rat horses escape from the barn and they come to the rat catcher's shed looking for the rat catchers because they're like, the rat went all crazy. Like you brought a weird rat. This is the rat catcher's fault. And they come to look for them and they find Militia and Keith and Militia sort of talks them into leaving partly by telling them the truth, which is so ridiculous they don't believe it, which is great. I always love that as a thing. Militia reveals that she knows a thing or two about Rat Kings because there's folklore about them. And Keith's like, tell me about it. Meanwhile, Morris is off looking for dangerous beans because he and Peaches have vanished and he finds the broken bits of the Mr. Bunsy book, which is, oh, so heartbreaking. Oh, and the, when he first finds a little sign of it, it's like a red swirl in the water and you're mm. like, is that blood? And it's like, no, it's ink from the book, but it's still like, oh, this is, that's almost worse. But he runs into Spider the Rat King, who is like, oh, I'm going to get you. And he's realized earlier in the book that this voice can't read his mind. It can only figure out where he is because it can see through his eyes and hear through his ears. Like some kind of spider. Spiders can't do that. They just have lots of eyes. But yeah, yeah. I like the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know how these spiders like talk to you in your head and can see mm. what you're seeing and are just, they like, can't read your mind, but they're, yeah. That's why they're so good at hiding. They're regular spiders. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why spiders' army of bigger, stronger rats that are are not in the cage but, like, are hiding, I think that's why they're so good at hiding because he knows where everybody else can see Mm. so they know where not to be, which is why the other rats couldn't find them earlier. Um, They're just really well hidden. When they said spider, I was was like, when's the Charlotte's Web moment coming? Like, when's something going to be written in a web and it never came? Like, wait, it's not a literal spider. So, yeah, just a insight into what i expected to happen that didn't so yeah yeah. well i think he's called spider because he's made up of eight rats right Mm. because because there's not a set number that there has to be um which is a particularly magical number on the discord yeah Yeah. maybe that's the problem maybe that's why this rat king is able to take over i hadn't thought of that before but you're right like yeah eight is the is the discord number did they start sharing a hive mind did they become like an internet of of rats is that they, like they kind of describe it that way and actually it reminded me really strongly in uh, in dungeons and dragons uh drink uh yeah sorry folks but in dungeons and dragons there's a kind of monster called a cranium rat and the idea of cranium rats is that if they're on their own or there's only a small number of them, they're just like normal rats, but they they look like normal rats, but they have a bigger than normal brain, which kind of sticks out the top of their head. No, thank you. And the more of them are near each other, the smarter and smarter they get. And it's exponential. And if you get like a horde of them where there's like 20 or 30 of them, they start to not only be smart, but they have psychic powers and they can talk to oh, you in your brain and control you and like 
do telekinesis and stuff like that. So this this mm. rat king thing reminded me pretty strongly of cranium rats. Um, yeah, that's not for me. That's not my passion. That's, nah. that's fair. That's fair. Mm. If we ever play Dungeons and Dragons, I'll, I'll make sure that there aren't any in the game. Thank you. And then suddenly one will jump out from behind a hedge and we'll be like, no, Ben, not again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the um the Rat King reveals its plans. Like it, it mm-hmm. basically wants to grow bigger and stronger and gather influence over more and more rats so that it can like just wipe out whole towns full of humans and take over as this all powerful horde of rats controlled by this one hive mind of spider. And its plan is that when the rat piper and they've called for a, a rat piper, a real rat piper, um as opposed to the scam one. You can charge three hundred dollars to come and pipe them out of town, spider's going to get them piped into the river. But rats can swim, so they're just going to split up and go to other towns and take a little bit of spider with them and expand spider's influence so that he's got control over this massive army of rats. But now he's met dangerous beans, and he's got dangerous beans cornered, and he's also like, but you can think. If you submit to me and become part of my regime, that's just going to make me even more powerful because you're not a big, strong, physical rat, but your mind added to my mind will make me more powerful. And he tries to enumerate how he's got so powerful. Is It's like one one mind is one mind and two minds is two minds, but three minds is four minds and four minds is like, and then he gets lost in the numbers because he's a rat, right? And he's like, uh, and eight minds is like better than eight minds. And you're like, okay, you don't know how exponentials work, but- Cool. I really liked this because, you know, sometimes in some of Pratchett's books, you find out what the big plot is or the big thing that's going to happen at the end, and it feels a bit rushed and it doesn't quite make sense. But in this, it just it just all works so well. Yeah, because Spider is trying to make a World Wide Web. He's- <laughs> oh, my God. Out of rats. I'm upset by that, but I really respect it. <laughs> but it's so accurate. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry, I don't know if I could deal with that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I won't. I'll just ignore it, and we'll go back to what's happening with the other rats, because by this time, uh, Darktown and the others have brought Ham and Pork back to the clan. They're kind of regrouping. Ham and Pork dies of his injuries from the rat coursing, um, but says something to Darktown before it happens. Classic. There's not a challenge as such, but everyone kind of mostly senses that now Darktown is in charge. There's a bit of tension with some of the other bigger rats, but then Darktan is just sort of inspired and is like, we can do this, let's go. And he has this great speech where he's like, we're going to save Dangerous Beans, we're going to get rid of these other rats, we can do this, and we need to rescue Dangerous Beans because we need him. I can lead you, but I can't do it without him. He's got the map. And and there's this great thing where Darktan's developed the idea of a map. Instead of words, he's about maps because he's like, well, I need to know where the tunnels are and where the traps are. But he thinks Dangerous Beans has the map for how they become better rats. So he's got to go and rescue him. Can I also just say there's an interesting opposite directions thing that happens because throughout the book when a rat dies, they tend to eat it um, unless it's been poisoned. They choose not to eat ham and pork because it doesn't feel quite right to them and they bury him with this sort of beautiful symbol. But it's kind of the opposite of what the um, spider wants to do, which is like cause when you eat it, you're taking on something else. It's like the old thing of you take on their strength if you eat them or kill them. Mm. So while they're deciding to not sort of become one through eating each other, the spider is doing the opposite thing where, mm. yeah. 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 And you've got this great standoff, though, where also spiders like amplifying its mental powers. It's just sort of concentrating on trying to 
get Dangerous Beans to submit and also holding Morris in place because previously he hasn't been able to control Morris's actions. It's taken it a while to figure out how to get into a cat's head and make a cat do what it wants. Uh, and now it's using all its mental power to both hold Morris at bay and also try and destroy Dangerous Beans once he like says, I'm not joining you. You're, you're vermin. You're gross. Like, mm. you know, we were just rats and then people made cities and then we started stealing stuff from them and we became vermin because of how humans treated us. And now you've been created by humans and you're a new kind of vermin and we don't want to be any part of that. But then the, the solution kind of is also great. Like, again, sometimes Pratchett's endings feel a bit deus ex machina, but this just made so much sense is that Spider's concentrating so hard on obliterating Dangerous Beans' mind that the side effect is he kind of obliterates the thinking part of Morris's mind, which means he just goes full cat and all of the anger and wanting to kill things that have been pent up inside him since he's been a thinking creature just get unleashed and he just leaps in. And for that one moment, he's just so furious he could have like, what is what is the phrase he says? He's like, in that moment, he could have taken down a wolf or something like that. And mm. and he just tears it apart. And at the right moment, he just like bites the knot of tails and destroys the Rat King and his influence is gone. And meanwhile, Dark Tan and his troop of soldiers, and he has that real kind of Henry V kind of moment where he's like once more into the breach, but they're taking on the big <laughs> dangerous rats and killing them all off. It just works for the story. I really loved it. And then even though he's gone full cat, when he needs to rescue dangerous beans, he still carries him gently out in his mouth. It looks like... You're not sure exactly what's happened in that scene, but then he like has him in his mouth, but he's actually just gently carried him out and then he puts him onto the ground. Well, I thought it was pretty clear that he's still full feral, like he's gone full feral cat and he attacks Dangerous Beans and, and kills him, but then oh, really? comes back to his senses and then goes, oh no, and picks him up and carries him out. Because huh. cause Dangerous Beans says like, no, Morris, no. And he's leapt on him. And I think, so I think he kills uh, Dangerous Beans yeah. and then carries that him out. That makes sense. Once his brain comes back and he's like, oh, shit, what have I done? Yeah, but he yeah. makes up for it. He does. Yeah, he does. He pays. With his life. Because he kind of comes out and collapses after putting dangerous <laughs> beans down nicely amongst the other rats. And that's when we have our death cameo. The death of rats turns up to take dangerous beans. And Morris, who can see him because cats can see death, is like, no. And he pounces on him. And he's like, no. And the actual death is there as well because the death of rats is only for rats. And death picks him up. And there's this great discussion where it's like, how many lives are you up to now, Morris? <laughs> he's like, oh, there's that cart last week. Um, yeah, I've got a few left. I've got four left. He's like, no, it's five. He's like, no, four. Four. And yeah. he bargains with death and says, take two of my lives and leave him alone. And there's sort of that moment where death's a bit surprised because he doesn't normally have this kind of conversation with a cat. Mm. Uh, but he loves cats, and this is well established in his, you know, previous appearances. And he's like, "All right, you sure you want to do that? Like, he's not going to live that long anyway." And Morris is like, "I'm sure." And, like, and okay. there's a great scene in his interaction with Death where he goes, "Yes, sir, Mister Death, sir." And they've had a footnote earlier about how the sir thing is a rat thing, where they don't. It was hard for them to do a word. It was more like an attitude of it. And now Morris is doing like the rat thing, where he's sort of mm. he's observant. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they have that thing where they bow to each other. Yeah. Yeah, so he's doing that um, as he gives one of his lives to a rat and is just showing him being part of the community and developing as a character, and I thought that was quite nice. <laughs> just like the sir thread. Yeah, that was great. And we think, hey, everything is sorted out, but there's a problem because 
There's 50 more pages and what's going to happen? Yeah, the the real rat piper is still coming and he's still going to pipe the rats out. And this is like, you know, the piper they tell stories about where if you don't pay him, like he makes your legs explode or he turns the mayor of the town into a toad or something, you know. It's... And he takes the children. But Keith has thought of an answer to this. He's like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to keep all the rats in the cages. We're going to stop them from getting out. All the clan is going to not go as well because we'll get cotton wool, like stick it in their ears. And then he won't be able to pipe anything out and the piper will be humiliated and he'll leave. And Morris is like, that's your plan. Look, that's a dumb plan, kid. Like, it's it's okay, but you don't understand how people work. And you're like, it's great that the cat is the one saying that. Well, cats understand us better than we understand ourselves. That's because there's that whole thing about they make us do things for them. Like they bend our will <laughs> to do their stuff. So, yeah. Because there's that thing where he asks death if um, there's a big cat in the sky. And he's like, no, oh, that sounds a lot like work. So do you reckon cats would do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like, mm, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> they enact the plan that Keith comes up with mostly... So Keith challenges the piper to a piping duel, uh, but his pipe has previously been snapped by the rat catchers. So he, he says, oh, I'll take any instrument you've got. And he borrows like an old trombone from one of the watchmen <laughs> of the town, plays a little tune on it. And one rat appears and it's sardines who shows up wearing his little hat and doing a little dance. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. But everyone also laughs. They're like, oh, you piped up one rat. That's great. And then the piper's like, I'll show you how it's done, kid. Uh, and again, I love the character of the Piper, by the way. He was great. He is wild. Mm. And he's done, we, we just read um, The We Free Men, and there's a bit in that where the Gonagall also has this thing where he just sort of calmly gets his mouse pipes out and clicks them into place while they're in danger. And the, and the Piper here does the same thing. Where he like sort of just calmly gets his collection of pipes and he selects one and he screws it together. And then he plays his tune and no rats appear except for one of the toy mechanical mice that they use. Mr. Clicky. Mr. Clicky. Mr. Clicky. So good. And the Piper's like, all right, kid, you bested me. And he's like, there's no, he doesn't argue. He doesn't like get in a huff and, and, and bugger off. Like, I really liked that about his character where he's just sort of like looks at Keith with a new respect and he's like, all right, you beat me. All right. Uh, you won the bet. Here's one of my pipes. That's what you said you'd take. And then they have a conversation and Keith is like, look, if we join forces, we can get rid of the rats in the town. And the piper's like, what kind of deal have you got going on with the rats? And he's like, just don't worry about it. It's $300, right? Because they heard he charged $300, but then when he arrives, it's like $1,000 plus expenses. And they're like, we can't afford that. And he's like, well, I guess like we'll have to do something else then. And they've heard all these stories about what happens if you don't pay the piper. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they work together and they do pipe all these rats out of the town. But it turns out it's just... The non-thinking rats, all of the smart rats go along, but they all just encourage the other rats because they do pipe them down to the river and they swim off to live out their ratty lives somewhere else. But they leave the town, which leaves them with the problem of what do we do? Because Darktan's like, we're not doing this anymore. We're not doing the scam, but we're not fighting with humans. We've got to find a way to exist here. And they come up with a plan. And it's Disneyland. With rats instead of mice. I only do, only after I finished reading the book and I was making my notes did I go, oh, it's like Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't get it the first time. I don't know why. It reminded me of um, you know, speaking of Shrek and we were talking about Lord Farquaad, like what it looks like before they get there, and it's just so chilling. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it ends up happy though because they they yeah. they talk to the mayor, they talk to the council. No, listen, hear us out. Like, if we make an alliance, you will never have to worry about rats in your town. You can just give us some food. 
but we'll we'll do work we'll we'll work together like we can do like the tiny intricate bits of clock making and other sorts of things and um we can make sure there's no other pests in town um and you could have a big um a rat clock that people come from miles around to see where on the hour rats come out <laughs> and do a little dance and there could be the piper playing and they come up with this whole plan and then there's a whole bunch of bureaucracy that they've got to figure out like but what if a rat does something that's not right it's like well they can get arrested. How are you going to arrest a rat? Well, they'll have to be rat members of the watch and all this kind of stuff that they figure out, which is just They're glorious. beautiful Mr. Bunsy society. Oh. Yeah. yeah. But I love how in amidst all of this, the mayor is just repeatedly trying to marry off his daughter. <laughs> He's just That's like, right. Mr. Rat Piper, as part of the deal, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And he's like, I'm good. And then later it's like Keith is, you know, got this plan in motion. And he's like, again, the offer is still on the table. And Alicia's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And like he, he qualifies it. He's like, oh, when she's a bit older, obviously. Like I'm not trying yeah. to marry off my 10-year-old daughter or how old she is. And he's like, that's still a weird guy. Come on. Real Pride and Prejudice <laughs> mum vibes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. But yeah, that leads us to the happy ending of the book where they form this society and Bad Blintz becomes famous as the town where the rats are part of the place and you can buy postcards and little, you know, ears. fake rat ears. But Morris decides not to be part of it. He leaves and he goes off to have a new adventure by finding some kid who's walking along the road with his belongings <laughs> in a sack on a stick over his shoulder. Hey, kid, do you want to be Lord Mayor? <laughs> you like, this is amazing. You want to see a dead body? He's going to be puss in boots now. Because <laughs> yeah, they foreshadowed the boots thing earlier with Militia as well. So it's just, yeah. It's- yeah. Yeah, it's great. And now he's going to be the next Marquis de Carabas. Uh, another Neverwhere point of comparison. Anyway, so that brings us to the end of the book. I think it's probably been pretty obvious all the way through. I loved everything about this book. It's just it's so good. I loved all the characters. I loved the story. I loved the plot. I loved the way it all really came together. Everything that you needed for the conclusion was set up along the way and it was so funny there's so many funny moments even though it was quite grim all of the rats names are hilarious anytime sardines shows up Uh, i'm all about it like (laughs) he's my rat i love him just really good absolute hacking delight i enjoyed every moment of it and i had to because this was the first time i was reading on a kindle and so i could highlight things easily without having to write them out by hand like i normally do so i was trying to resist just like highlighting literally everything yes so, yeah because it's just so many good lines and moments yeah yeah i think as a pratchett noob it was sort of the perfect book to introduce myself to his canon mm. it's like when you're reading maybe like 19th century english literature and there's like a certain lilt to the language and you sort of have to s- sit in it for a while and maybe reread the first chapter a couple of times which I did and I was just like there's just so much joy and cheek in the writing and then when you've got characters like this who are so well formed and so um yeah you get thrown into the story and you know exactly what the conceit's gonna be you just get taken for a fun ride and and I liked that in many ways it is in a children's book and he says that in his speech when he wins the award for it He's just like, I shouldn't be winning this award, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's real cheeky in that speech. Pratchett's Carnegie Medal acceptance speech is still a pretty great read. To give you a taste, here's his opening line. I'm pretty sure that the publicist from this award would be quite happy if I said something controversial, but it seems to me that giving me the Carnegie Medal is controversial enough. You can find the full version in Pratchett's 2014 non-fiction collection, 
a slip of the keyboard. Yeah, so I really loved it. Yeah, it's one I'll read again, I reckon, as well, because I think it's one that you'd pick up details every time, like little Mm. different things. But yeah, maybe in a few years' time, because there's no time to read extra Pratchett's between the Pratchett's. But um, yeah. (laughs) You say that. Uh, But no, I I totally agree. I would definitely read it again. Uh, And I hope that they still make the film. I don't know. Like the, I don't want to talk too much about that because it's very speculative. All we've seen is a little bit of concept art. And the characters all do look much more fluffy and more DreamWorksy than Disney-fied, I must say, but still very clean and and nice um, rather than, you know, gross and gritty, which is more what the book is like. But then again, I also am fascinated to see what the primary school age musical looks like on stage with kids playing <laughs> the parts of the rats and the and, and Morris and Keith and Militia. And I'm just like... How does this work? I need to see this. Everything's just the same size or like maybe some kids stand really far away. Yeah. But they're the- <laughs> So if there, are, if there are any teachers or parents listening who have seen and have photos of and would be willing to share, we would love to see them even just privately. Like obviously don't share them publicly, but we would also just really encourage you to maybe read the book and see if your school wants to put it on. <laughs> just yeah, like, I, I mean, amazing. Oh, Love it. Does anyone have any favourite bits I want to read out before we get on to some questions? I had a lot of favourite passages. It'd be too much to to read, I think. But I also really loved the pictograms, like the language, mm. and Pratchett invented that basically. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that an illustrator, it was clear enough for them to go off. Um, so I thought that was really lovely. Because it's a good use of illustration, mm. and it's not always used well. Mm. I did really like when they're interrogating the rat catchers and Morris sort of is like, you killed the rats, and they hear something in his voice. I really love this passage. Rat catcher one's head turned sharply. There was an edge to that voice that he recognised. He'd heard it at the pit. You got them there sometimes, high-rolling types with fancy waistcoats who travelled through the mountains making a living by bedding and sometimes making a killing by knives. Hmm. They had a look to their eye and a tone to their voice. They were known as killing gentlemen. You didn't cross a killing gentleman. Mm. Serious business. Well, it makes sense to me that when you hear the voice of a talking intelligent cat, they have an edge to them that is a bit like an assassin because they are killers. Yeah. Just small. There's a reason we keep them inside in Australia. Like, otherwise they kill everything they can get their hands on. Mm. I'm glad you agree they have hands. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes they behave that way. Oh, my cat is at my door just <laughs> demanding to be let in. And he's like, let me use my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Open this door. I mean, Michelle's cat is called Bean, but not Dangerous, not dangerous Bean. Although he is a Dangerous Bean. That's going to be his, it's his new nickname now, saying. right? Dangerous <laughs> Bean. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked that when they, Peaches and Dangerous Beans are introduced to Militia, Keith says, this is Militia, her father is the mayor. Peaches says, mayor, isn't that like government? Morris says governments are very dangerous criminals and steal money from people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't read them out, but I really love Dark Tan's speech where he sort of quotes, he talks about the dark wood as a metaphor and the dark wood being the scary place where Mr. Bunsey ends up in his story. Maybe I'll read just a little bit of it. You heard about the dark wood in the book? Well, we're in the dark wood now. There's something else down there. Something terrible. It hides behind your fear. It thinks it can stop you and it's wrong. We're going to find it and drag it out and we're going to make it wish we'd never been born. And if we die, well... Death ain't so bad. Shall I tell you about the bone rat? 
He waits for those who break and run, who hide, who falter. But if you stare into his eyes, he'll give you a nod and pass right on. I have heard worse inspiring speeches in Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> like this is this is amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Better than Shakespeare. <laughs> Less dick jokes though. It's yeah. true. Well, shall we get on to some listener questions? Because we've got quite a few and there's some really good ones. Yeah. Um. So the first one is from Belinda, which came by email. Were you blindsided by how dark this is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Look, yes, but not entirely. There's always an edge to Pratchett's books, even his other kids' books. Like Truckers, which is his book about like tiny gnome creatures who, who have to survive in the human world. Like one of the early parts of that book is them talking about how the gnomes that live out in the wild have to fight off foxes. And it describes this horrendous like mm. sequence where a fox gets into the burrow where they live and eats one of them and they fight it off with their little spears. It's full on. And there's a lot of grown up kind of ethical discussions in those books too, which I really love. So I guess in a way, no, but I think this does go to an even more full on and dark place than say the truckers trilogy. Yeah, because the second part of her question is, do you think this is a book for children? I have children and I would call this YA because it's way too dark. I guess I was more shocked by the darkness when I realized it had been marketed in the US, at least as a children's book, Uh, because I went into reading it thinking it was just a novel for adults. Mm. Um, And I think it is suitable for kids, but as Ben was saying earlier, maybe that age group that is like 8 to 12 because I think children like reading things that obviously are older. And as a bookseller, I sort of knew that as well because it's like an aspirational thing. Mm. But I think some of the themes in it, I think kids grasp those concepts as a broad thing. But then as they get older, it sort of lands. And I, I know that especially in my experience of reading fantasy that had quite, you know, big ideologies behind them when I was reading Philip Pullman's work when I was younger I was like this is a really cool story and then I reread his dark materials a couple of years ago and I was like just bawling my eyes out constantly yeah and you know I've got a friend whose kid is reading Harry Potter at the moment and I think he's seven and he's up to Order of the Phoenix wow and you know he's just finished Goblet of Fire and he's like oh my god Cedric died and um, my brother, who's reading it along with him, is like, how do you feel about that? Like, is that quite scary for you? And he's like, you know, I guess it's okay, but I don't know if he's really dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're really processing it as they go along. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I remember I watched um, Oliver Twist with my mom, the cartoon version, when I was quite a young child. Like, I would have been probably like six or seven. And when Nancy dies in that one, because she's my favorite character in it, because she was the only woman in it, and she dies quite horribly. And I was like, afterwards, my mom and I were talking about it. And I was like, oh, well, you know how, like, Nancy's not really dead. When we watch it tomorrow, she'll not die in that time. Like, it's going to be different when we watch it again. And we'll watch it again tomorrow so that that's not the ending. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is appropriate when you know what age range it's for. Mm. It's definitively like a middle grade and probably slightly older middle grade level. Because he has written books that are children's books for very young children, but usually they're spin-offs from the Discworld, like Where's My Cow? And we will cover that on the podcast at some point. My favorite thing about that is the, the blurb on the front. You know how like they have 
little things from authors saying that this book is good for this or like a profound meditation on the like problems yeah. of our times. But it says, have we not all in some way lost our cow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who hasn't? Yeah. If anyone ever asks me to blurb a book, I'm going to have to really rein myself in from just making that it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I, I think the general age range for for middle grade is like 10 to 14, I think. Is that about right? And I think that feels about right to me. Like I think mm. I think kids in that age range would really get their teeth into this. Younger kids, yeah, it, it's going to be for a lot of them. And again, you know, not every kid is the same, obviously. For some of them, it's going to be too much, even if they are in that age range. But but I think most kids of that age range would really like this. And I think it would lead to some really interesting and important discussions too. Hmm. There's lots of things in it that are real big ethical questions that I think it's really cool to see in a, in a book that's aimed at this age hmm. group. Well, something that I kept thinking of when I was reading The Amazing Maurice was Animal Farm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it just really... Especially re- the rules. Totally. I was just like, oh, okay, this is a younger animal farm. That makes sense. I didn't. I didn't. I don't know why I didn't make that connection. But yeah, that's totally. <laughs> At least there wasn't the glue factory scene, or like oh. the going to the yeah. Oh man, yeah. Come mm. on. So I should mention that Belinda actually sent us through quite a few questions. Um, I'll merge some of them in with others, but um, this is another one. What did you think of Death's cameo? And would you have given one of your cat lives for a rat that would likely not live that much longer? Which is actually a really good point. But I mean, in terms of percentage of life, however, like even if he only lives one or two more years, that's like a third of his life. Or even half of his life, potentially. So, yeah, it depends on where you place the value of life. I think a big part of it for Morris is that he's getting a chance to undo something that he's done wrong. And, like, who wouldn't take that? And it doesn't matter how long he's going to live. He gets to know that Dangerous Beans is not dead because of him. But I think also the clan needs Dangerous Beans, even if he's only around for another year, like his contribution is going to be huge. It's going to be so vital to their ongoing lives in this town. So yeah, I think, I think yes. In general, like if I had nine lives, yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't give them all away for other people, but yeah, wouldn't you? I think we've all, we've all got someone, whether they're a rat or a person who you like, yeah, I would undo that. So yeah, totally. All right, so I'm going to roll a few questions into one because um, there's one from Belinda, which was, what would your rat name be? And one from Joel, which we talked about earlier, which is your educated rat name is the first food label you saw after waking up. So I want to follow on from that with a question from Claire, which came via Facebook. How would you write your name in the rat language or possibly your street sign? (laughs) I've got an idea of what mine would look like. So if I'm doing best before, if there's two rats and one is ahead of the other with two thumbs up, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's great oh that's good there's some Burjo's catchphrase level oh, genius god bless Burjo <laughs> well my if my rat name is Vapor Drop or Vapor Drops uh, it's probably just Vapor Drop right I don't think you'd do the, the plural although Dangerous Beans is Dangerous Beans not Dangerous Beans so I guess it is Vapor Drops <laughs> um, but I guess rats would understand the concepts of vapor and being dropped so I think you'd have a, a rat falling through a cloud of vapor <laughs> that's how i'd write my rat name mine doesn't make sense but it's the image that will not leave my mind because i had sliced jalapenos so i guess it would be like a jalapeno shape but like with lines through it to show that it's sliced and above it is above each one is a rat either surfing on their slice of jalapeno or dabbing and i'm not dabbing. sure is it because 
is it because they've done such a good job of eating the spicy thing but like it's the image that won't leave so just it makes I mean, sense because it's like hot 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 so they're sort of dancing or you know dancing. you don't want to do the traditional thing where they're like breathing fire I initially thought of that because fire is such an important thing about their whole like getting lost, not knowing about the shadows and education and um, being a whole thing. I feel like the symbolism is too, they've, they've already, that's going to occupy their philosophical text. You've got to get a little more creative with your spicy fire. So yeah, dabbing <laughs> okay. rats. All right, I'll pay that. That's good. I like that one. I look forward to signing that on bank forms. <laughs> okay. If there are any artists out there, we would love to see some renditions of our rat names. Uh, you can tweet about us. Use the hashtag Pratchat33 for this episode. Or if anyone is inspired to tell us their rat name and also illustrate it, um, send yeah. it through. So, yeah. Yeah. Either one you made up or, or um, according to Joel's rule that it's the first writing on a food package you see after you wake up. Um, and this one's from Belinda. How would you feel being on a committee with a talking rat? Um, yeah, so like a normal committee. How <laughs> Uh, yeah, I honestly feel like it's not much different to any other committee, and mm-hmm. I'd be more inclined to listen to an educated rat because it sounds like they've done the work. They'll, they've self-educated. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that a lot of people haven't done. Mm-hmm. They just end up there. And they have specific needs that they articulate well, and all you got to do is say yes, okay. Like it's not that yeah. hard. <laughs> It's like, okay, sure. I think the snacks would be like of a lot higher quality because they, they do demand a lot of food. So like the snack situation at a committee meeting with a talking rat would probably be pretty good. Very much so. And if you had the same number of committee members, your snack budget would be much smaller because the rats don't need to eat as much. Mm. True. Yeah, and it would be like a Graham base book like every time. Like, <laughs> a beautiful illustration. <laughs> I know those are mice, but... Yeah, I mean, it's win-win. Yeah. So more rats on committees is, I guess, what, what the conclusion really, is. Look, I, I don't know if it's because we're just talking about this as committees, but now I really want to see us drawn as rats. <gasps> like, I want someone to draw us as rats. <laughs> That'd be so cool. Right. One of us have to be... Next time we get a logo. Well, it'll be us as rats, and then I guess Asimov as the Pratt Cat being our Morris. Oh. <laughs> yeah, protect. Yeah. Protect, attack. Yeah. One would, one would hug. Yeah. Oh no, no, yeah. don't do that. <laughs> That's why Huxley can't be in the picture because she would definitely <laughs> do a snack. <laughs> um, this one's from Sven via Discord. What type of education would you recommend for a young rodent in these modern times to be a well-educated rodent? I mean, internet, so they could deal with spider. <laughs> it's terrible, but also appropriate. Oh art? Yeah, but good art. Mm. Yeah. Not none of this bullshit. Mm. I mean, ethics-wise, they need to be quite widely read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if you're starting, if you're a rat, you already have a very different perspective on that than human beings. So that's very true. Yeah, teach them to write well so that they can share their point of view with more people. Mm. I think that'd be nice. Yeah, mm. bit a bit more cat liter. Sorry, a bit more um, rat literacy. I could run a creative writing workshop for the rats. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to do that. That'd be great. I would definitely zoom into um, that. Well, they'd also have to learn how to use Zoom. They also have to social distance. That is true. Yes. Well, they need that for a modern education these days. But you know what? Like for rats, one laptop is like a drive-in cinema. So you could have a whole bunch of rats attending a Zoom conference with with one laptop. It'd be so cool. Like they could just be sitting there eating their snacks or looking up at the big screen. It'd be great. Just eating one popcorn, like for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just spill it out in front of them, each one. Like, like a cauliflower. That'd be so good. 
This one's from Rin via Facebook. So for veterinary, the mice are spies and keep him informed. In this book, they have a symbiotic relationship with humans. What would you want your mice to do for you? That's a good question. If you had an army of mice, like what would you... So this is a previous book in which uh, Lord Veterinary, leader of Ankh-Morpork, is imprisoned, but he's made friends with another bunch of intelligent, and I think they are mice, who spy for him and stuff. And they have they have names, but they have names in like the rat language. They don't speak English. So they're a different kind of, of smart thing. But yeah, what would you do? Make them carry stuff around, or like deliver things. Like get my charger from upstairs. That would be helpful. <laughs> Doing really menial tasks. Yeah. It's like an ant. It'd be nice to have a rat personal assistant hmm. because as a freelancer, I would love to have an assistant to do admin stuff, like send out invoices for me and things. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I think I get their help with craft stuff. Like when I don't do it as much anymore, but when I make games, there's always like lots of little fiddly stuff to do, like cutting little bits of stuff out. And like the last game I ran, I had these little jars that I hid around the place and they had little clues in them. And I was like, that's hard. Get the rats to find a good place to hide them and put all the stuff inside the jar and then screw the top on. Like they could do that. That'd be great. They'd be a great army. And they could also, yeah, I would get them to spy on people. Like that would be really useful in those kinds of games. Oh, that'd be mm-hmm. good. Like when you have to watch the players to see what they're doing, but you don't want them to know they're being watched. Um, but you have to make sure yeah. they're safe. Like the rats could help me with that. I wouldn't need like a closed circuit camera system for my escape room. I just have rats. <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah, or just send them out to meet friends when you're in social isolation so they can hear what all of my friends have been up to and then I can then have this weird catch-up, like a lunch with the rat, so it feels like I'm socialising because I'm hearing them just parroting back what's been happening with my friends. Oh, my God. So when you first said that, I thought you meant, like, you wanted them to go out in, like, a you costume and pretend to be you at a <laughs> social <laughs> event. <laughs> I was like, wait. That, ooh. That's great. Just rats in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love a good no, rat in a trench coat? A relay That's French, great. like, is much, it's much better. I was like, oof, I don't know if I could, <laughs> like, how many rats would they, there need to be to be a, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> a few. A yeah. few rats. Uh, grocery shopping? Though I guess I'd freak out other people. Oh, yeah. Use them to Maybe. freak people out is, like, a good one, I think, as well. It's a good one. Finding things that I've lost. But I think if you had, like, a whole clan of rats, I reckon they'd be so useful in an escape room. Like, because after people have done the escape room, you have to reset everything back to normal. If you had a whole horde of rats, they could all do it in like five seconds. It'd be so good. Yeah, I want to run. I want to run a games company with a bunch of intelligent rats. That's that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And on that note, I think let's go to our, our final question. This one's from Sarah via Facebook. So you have a pipe that would hurt anything at all. What would you hurt and why? Lego. Just, <laughs> just get it out from under your feet. Clean it up when you finish playing. It's just too difficult <laughs> to gather. Imagine if you had a magical flute; it could hurt up all the Lego, and also be make it'd make building the boring bits so much quicker. Like, what if you could play your pipe and they just like build the tower, and then you could put all the fun bits on yourself? That'd be great. Yeah, Lego. There you go. That's my answer. Maybe birds, Ooh. Uh, because they're very great communicators, so I could send a lot of messages via them. But I would also, I would love to fly. Mm. I love flying dreams. So if they could just create one giant eagle that I could just ride on, like <laughs> Lord of the Rings. 
Well, maybe it could be like in those other stories where like all the birds like grab different bits of your clothing and they just yeah. lift you up off the ground as a collective. Yeah, that'd be fun, but terrifying. You know, I'd have to place a lot of trust in them, in their little claws. But you're hurting them, so like you're you're in charge. Exactly. Yeah, true. Be nice. It is a tough one because there's so many ways you could use it. So I think I'm going to have to borrow from X-Men and I would want to like basically have a version of Magneto's power where I could herd metal because then there's all these different things you could do with it. Because, like, there's this great one where he's, like, trying to get across a ridge and he just, like, makes, like, a disc of metal and it, like, like transports him across, like, on a giant coin. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not terrifying at all. Like, you definitely not have oh. terrible balance and fall into the chasm. But he could just, like... Yeah. <laughs> he's so chill yeah. about it. He's the master of magnetism, you know? Mm. He's onto it. Yeah. If you could herd all of the CO2 and then just, like, blast it somewhere just, else. Just, like, yeet pollution oh. into space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind eating pollution in space. That'd be great. Well, if, if you, you got to yeah. eat something. If you could herd, like, atoms, you could just change anything into anything. Mm. You just go, oh, I'm going to yeah. play my little pipe and I'm going to change the chemical composition of this CO2 so that it's just water Oxygen. and something harmless. Like, it's just, yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't make water out of CO2. That's a lie. Like, there's no hydrogen in it. But you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know? That's the science podcast. Yeah, you could get real dark with it as well. Like, there's, all, there's, there's just so many different things you could do. But, yeah. yeah. But, like, it's like any superpower. That was a great lot of questions. There's a lot to think about and about the inner darkness, that apparently, that some of that has unleashed in me. So, um... <laughs> I knew there was darkness when you first brought up the M&Ms. Look, that you was just chilling. find the strongest M&M. It's, it's normal. People well, do, do this. What do you do with you're that? You're the rat catcher. No, wow. you're the rat king. How dare you both? You can't see the other seven. You have combined a lot of M&Ms together in your life, though. Like, you are the result of that. No, you don't combine them. You you crush one of them and eat it. Yeah, but then you've eaten lots of them. Yeah, but they're not still inside. <laughs> well, let's hope. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with the strongest one? You just admire it a bit and then you eat that too. <laughs> so all of this is pageantry. It's just your enjoyment. <laughs> before you kill them all anyway. Yeah, it gets to murder everyone it came through the packet with and then live with that for a little bit longer and then die itself. <laughs> okay. Right. Look, this uh, wouldn't be nearly as horrifying if they didn't make them into little animated people in all of their advertising. That also eat M&Ms, as Michelle was saying before. Yeah, yeah, they... yeah that's so Chilling. not okay. No. It's, it's not all right. I don't like it. Unless those animated M&Ms are... They're like the people version, and then for them, the actual M and M's are like jelly babies for us. Like they're not really us; they're just in our in our shape. Maybe because like the the M and M's people have eyes and mouths. Do you know what's fun to do with um, jelly babies though? Is to get like a bunch of different coloured ones um, and bite different bits off each of them, and then merge them into a Franken jelly baby. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see Michelle's <laughs> face. But- I'm gathering she does not like this you, plan. Your relationship with Candy is very insightful, Liz. <laughs> I had to make my own fun. It didn't have any siblings or pads. You are not the kid in the ad who says, don't chop the dinosaur, Daddy. That's not you, right? It's the opposite. Because well, you can make a new dinosaur. Like yeah. a Steganosaurus. Now, this is Jurassic Park territory in the, in the Spinosaurus. Hey, do you guys want to come to my park? Like, it's, re- it's real safe. <laughs> Everything is edible. Yeah, everything is edible and nothing is horrifying. But look, that brings us to the end. 
What a joy it has been to read this book and discuss it. And what a joy it has been to have you with us on this journey, Michelle. Thank you so much for being a guest on Pratt Chat. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I'm so glad that I got to read my first Terry Pratchett book this way. Yeah, it's a good introduction. What are you going to read next, though, do you think? I don't know. I don't know where to start. I'll have to go back through the Pratt Chat archives are we... and have a listen and figure it out. And um, you could also um, get a whole series of really flustered messages from me um, where I backpedal on what one I suggest, um, as has happened to several people. So if you want Amazing. that in your inbox, uh, that is available to you. Thank you. Are you a fantasy reader, Michelle? I am, yeah. I really love fantasy. Like My favourite series is His Dark Materials books. Mm. Beyond that, like I love Margot Lanigan and obviously Harry Potter and I've just been reading my friend's series, Jeremy Lachlan's books, his Jane Doe series, that's for middle readers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and more recently I loved The Call, which was really dark, so highly recommend that. Okay, and w- would you recommend those Jane Doe books for, for kids maybe who have enjoyed The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents? think so yeah it's also a little bit dark <laughs> yeah but yeah i think for the age group that we were talking about it's suitable cool um yeah. and if people want to find out more about you and your work where can they find that out and what are you up to at the moment at the moment things are a bit up in the air with covid but i've got a play that will be on eventually at belvoir called miss peony and something more recent i guess is i've got a short story in the new after australia anthology which has been doing really well they just went to reprint awesome um, a couple of days ago yeah so that's just come out this month uh in june great excellent well we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes and to a place where they can find you if they want to follow up on your work in future as well so thank you so much for joining us um we will of course be back next month when we are completing our current trilogy of pratchett children's books which isn't really a trilogy, although we are returning to a trilogy that we've started earlier in the year because we're we're going to catch up with Johnny Maxwell. I really love the first one, even though I know nothing about games and I've heard that the next one isn't about games, so I'm excited to find out what it is about. It is definitely not about games. We are going to be finding out what Johnny's been up to in the second book in his series, Johnny and the Dead, and we'll be joined by beloved Australian children's author Oliver Pomervan. I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. Um, if you want to send us questions for that, you can send them into us via email at chat at pratchatpodcast.com or you can tweet us or get in touch with us on other social media. We do like it when you use the hashtag for the specific episode. So for our next episode about Johnny and the Dead, that will be Pratchat34. Uh, but if you've got any follow-up on this episode, then that's Pratchat33. And we would like to thank all of those who send in questions, including Belinda via email, and everybody else, a lot of whom are subscribers. And just a shout out again to all of our supporters and subscribers. Everything that you do to help us and let us know that you're listening to the podcast is wonderful. So thank you, everyone who's listened, who's written in, who's reviewed us, who subscribes. We appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. And until next time, please watch out for spiders on the World Wide Web. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Michelle Law. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat33. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.